Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and I'm very excited, you guys. You know how much I love doing our Love the Breeds episodes, and Spinoni Italiano have a very sweet spot in my heart, and I've been holding out, waiting for Allison Schultz to join me. Allison is one of the very early breeders of Spinoni in the U.S. Her Del Chaos kennel is very well known. One of the first best in show record holders in the breed was her dog Limbo, born right after the breed was AKC approved. And Allison has been involved with the breed since long before AKC recognized them. All right, guys, are you planning your next litter of puppies? Or maybe you just finished your foundation bitch and you're ready to start health testing. Embark, creator of the highest rated dog DNA tests on the market, offers specialized testing just for breeders. And while they're offering a few different tests, only the Embark for Breeders Dog DNA Kit was made to provide breed-relevant disease screening for your purebred dogs. It includes traits testing, such as coat color and body size, DLA diversity testing, breed ancestry, easy-to-download OFA submission reports, and the only genetic coefficient of inbreeding test available. Find out why thousands of breeders have trusted Embark to enhance their breeding program, including me, through screening for breed-specific genetic conditions, understanding traits, and identifying genetic diversity. To save on the most accurate, most comprehensive dog DNA kit, visit EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use the code PUREDOGTALK to take $20 off a full-priced Embark for Breeders dog DNA kit. That's EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use the code PUREDOGTALK. I'm very excited for this opportunity. Thank you, Allison. You're welcome. So cool. So talk to me a little bit. We call it the 411. Give me your background. You said you had your first Spinoni in the early 90s, and they were recognized by AKC in 2000. So what got you started with the idea of Spinoni? Well, I was living on the West Coast in Silverdale, Washington, Mm -hmm. and one of the surgeon's wives had a Spinoni. And it was the shyest dog I'd ever known in my life. Mm. I couldn't touch it, but I watched her. I watched her. She carried everything home from the neighborhood. Axes, waders, socks, baskets, pumpkins, squash, (laughs) dead fish from the sound, everything. And she moved like a hunting dog. And I grew up as a hunter. I shot my first duck at age six with my dad. So... Mm -hmm. I really have been into hunting for a long, long, long time. And this dog, she was a dog that wanted to get to know people, but had been born in a barn somewhere on the East Coast. They didn't really know who her parents were, just they were both Spinonis. But she was great. She was really a great dog. She was kind of skittish, but most of that, I believed it was nature, which it turned out to be. 
And then I found another couple of breeders in the States. And the first Spinoni I got was a quarter GSP. And the oh next Spinoni I got was one of the most beautiful Spinoni I owned entirely, but she had a lot of genetic issues. And I thought, well, this is amazing. So then I imported a dog from England, and that's Timo. And Timo flew from England into Missoula, Montana. And there was ice and snow on the ground. He'd been in a crate for probably 15, 16 hours with the change. And I had to wait until all the passengers were out before the gate person and the people could come and get him out of cargo for me because you're always last. Now you're first, but then you were last. And so I slipped him on a leash. He was about 11 months old, went outside and thought he would have to pee. And he just stared at me and looked at me and thought I was something. So I remember I got down in front of my knees and he put both his paws on my shoulder put his head under my neck and gave me this huge, huge hug. And then after he put his paws down, I got up and then he proceeded to pee and pee and pee and pee pee because he'd been in the plane forever. It just showed that immediately he wanted to say almost thank you before he took care of his business. Now, I wouldn't say all Spinoni are like that, but Timo was. And the thing I learned about the breed is that if you watch them, you don't ever have to say much to them. They're very intuitive. They expect to be your equal in the field, but they also expect you to set boundaries. So it's kind of like a partner rather than a dominance. So they're a breed that you never have to whack. A good no will do. Occasionally a little spritz of water, maybe. But when you say no to them and you don't say no all the time, it really changes them. I mean, they really go, oh, I really didn't mean to do that. Or is this bad? And they expect to be at your side or with you. They'll do what you need to do. You do what you need to do. But it should be a together kind of thing. Yeah. They don't need, unless they're taught very, very young, a huge amount of attention. Mm-hmm. Most Spinoni will come up to you, like to be petted, get a little stuff. And then they kind of look at you and say, okay, I'm going to my bed now. That's fine. Unless you're opening a treat box or right. unless you have company. And when you have company, they want to have their head in everybody's lap. Usually with a wet beard. (laughs) Well, yeah, that depends. We usually pick up the water and you shouldn't have a drooling Spinoni. That's a genetic trait. So they don't necessarily drool, but when they drink, they can get loogies that they can sling 30 feet in the air and hit the ceiling with. It's amazing how much water that beard will soak up in this particular breed to me. Yeah, I always give out calls with the puppies. I always say, you're going to need this, maybe not for nine months or so, but you're going to need this. And you can trim the beard. I think it takes away from the look of the Spinoni. But if you keep the beard clean and keep them stripped so that you don't have a lot of hair underneath the eyes and just have the beard over the schnoz or the muzzle, Mm -hmm. you'll be just fine. We've had dogs that never got their beards wet. They were the cleanest, absolute cleanest dogs in the world. And we had a little girl called Angelina, and she came from Italy, and she was hysterical. Because we had a fatty patty dog, and I would feed in the crates at night before we had the kennels, and the fatty patties were getting green beans because they needed bulk. And Angelina would not eat until she got her eight green beans in her food. And about a week later, and she was the cleanest dog, never any dust or dirt. She took care of everything. But I went through about 10 days later to wash all the beds, and I pulled her bed out, and every green bean was stuck under the bed because... 
She didn't like green beans, but she thought everybody else was getting something she deserved or that they were being treated special. And I guess that kind of gives you the idea of the Spinoni's sense of humor. Sense of humor, yes. (laughs) And wanting to be treated equally. And they're really democratic dogs about, you know, they should have a voice. You know, things should be comfortable. They don't need special things, but there are things they like that are special. And Timo was this great hunting dog, and he was amazing. It took us about a year because he had training in England to get him to open up in the field because there Mm -hmm. they hunt a hedgerow. And if they go off that hedgerow, they're DQ'd. But I didn't know he was afraid of thunder until I was on the top of a 30-foot ladder with a pressure washer with shorts and my Wellingtons on. All of a sudden, there's this cold, wet nose on the back of my thigh. And I look down, and here's Timo. So he climbed the ladder to let me know it was thundering out because I couldn't hear it over the pressure washer. Oh, I had no idea that he didn't like thunder. He sure didn't mind the shotgun. He didn't care about the shotgun. He was a fabulous hunter, but he was sort of afraid of thunder. So I had to get the 30 feet of the rod and the stuff off the pressure washer. And then I had to look at him and say, do you think you can get down? And he, he climbed down backwards until he got about four feet off the deck. And then he jumped off and we went in until the thunderstorm was over. Oh my God. You know, talk a little bit, Allison, about... The history of the breed that developed them into these dogs that they are today, which I think of them, as you mentioned it earlier, so incredibly empathetic. Like I have never, and I've been around dogs and bird dogs my entire life, never met a breed so like they look in your soul. They get you at a level that no other dog I think does. Well, that probably started 2,500 years ago because- Long before there was a gun, there was a hunting dog in Italy, and they were known as the pointing Griffon, rough coat Griffon, because they have a wire coat. Interestingly enough, when you go to Italy and you go to some of the palaces as a tourist, you'll see the Bracco Mm -hmm. in the mosaics and in the paintings because they were the dogs of the lords. Mm -hmm. The Spinoni was really the dog of the peasant. And when they first started hunting, it was either maybe slingshots, mostly nets, So they had to be really quiet in the field and they had to be intuitive because you couldn't yell at them because the birds would fly away. So they really became very close working, silent hunters. So they work at a trot so that the human can keep up. They're not one to bolt a half a mile away looking for a bird because they know it's so ingrained into them and so intrinsic that they had to hunt close. And the hunters would throw nets over the flocks of birds. And they developed a really thick skin, which is really, really important to the breed. And the thick skin is as thick as a cow. It's called the skin of the bull in Italy. And the name Spinoni means thorn. And they can go through any kind of cover without even noticing it. I had a professional trainer one time that told me he had a wine winer, a German wire hair pointer, and one of my guys out. And there's a pond that is absolutely encircled with rose thorns. And the wine winder wouldn't go through. He actually had to carry it through backwards. The German wire hair stopped and looked at the water. And after being told it had to go through, it went through. And the Spinoni went through like it didn't even exist. To them, it didn't even exist. So a really thick skin is really, really important in the breed because that's where all the insulation is. They're a single coat. They have no undercoat. And if they have a really good thick skin, they'll have that really good wire. And wire Mm -hmm. hair 
that's sort of like how the deer keep themselves insulated because there's air between it plus this thick, thick, thick skin. So they would sleep outside most of the time because the peasants, unless they were using them to warm their beds, they weren't out and they were made to hunt, you know, eight hours a day, 10, whatever daylight was, they would go out and hunt. So that was what they did. They hunted really closely and really quietly. And so really well-bred Spinoni, when you hear them go through the woods or through the corn and stuff, it should sound like just the sound of their feet, just this nice little sound like a deer going through. They have this ability to move quite silently through even the hardest cover. And even though they could break through easily, they just don't do that. They're very, I hate to say careful because that implies slow, but they're very, very careful about how they move. And the other thing they did is that they naturally flush. So they point and let the human being know where the birds are. And then if the net gets thrown or they throw the net up in the air, the spinoni will then flush the bird into the nets. And that's how they provided food long before there were guns and bows and arrows or anything, actually. And it's hard to hit birds with bows and arrows anyway. So very hard. (laughs) Yeah. That explains why they are a little more difficult to what we call break for pointing dogs, right? To get them to stand through the flush. Well, that isn't how they're trained. Mm. That isn't their natural ability. Their natural ability is to point, continue. If the bird moves, they move. And their game is to get the bird to hold. Mm. And then they flush the bird. It's only in the United States where humans risk their knees and their hips and their ankles by going up to find a bird. And Timo would point at 80 yards. So. It was very difficult until I had a series of photographs that showed me five yards, 20 yards, 30 yards in front of him trying to kick up a bird. And then I learned that if I just looked in his eyes, he would show me where the bird was because he'd look at me and then he'd look at the bird. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, is they have to point rabbits, their fur as well. Fur and feather, right? Yep. But the big deal here is that in the United States as a hunting dog, if you hunt in the Midwest and you hunt corn, you have to have a dog that flushes. You take one step into that dry, crackly corn and those birds are gone. Mm-hmm. So all of our dogs, we train to flush. They all point and we'll steady them to flush first because mm-hmm. to us, that's most important because people shoot. And right. if the dog is set at flush and says steady to flush, getting them steady at point is nothing. They do that by themselves as soon as the bird is stopped. It's pretty amazing. And they're also very good about naturally honoring We had a dog that loved to hunt and he was blind. He'd had a hunting accident in Italy and he would point, work the bird. We'd touch the back of his head and he'd flush and then we'd shoot. And then it was like, he had no idea where the bird was. But Timo, if he was the dog on honor, he would bump him in the shoulder and run tandem until Treo would smell the bird. And then Timo would come back to us and Treo would bring the bird back to us. And so I think that gives some indication that if you raise a Spinoni well, They are never to be dog aggressive towards each other. It's one of the hallmarks. The first thing in the original standard, which the Italians still hold to today, is they must be of a sweet temperament. Mm. So that means in 1,500 years of record keeping, there was never a bite in Italy from a Spinoni. One of the reasons their temperament must be so sweet is that they have to live with other dogs because the Italians usually had segugios to hunt and take care of the rats and the stuff and the vineyards and the gardens and stuff. And that's what they depended on for living. So the Spinoni had to be a dog that got along well with other dogs always. But the first thing in the standard is character. The most important thing about a Spinoni is the character. It has to be a sweet dolce, they call it, gentle character. 
that's very, very, very important. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. All right, you guys. If you are part of a national breed club in the U.S. or Canada, I need you to listen up. My partners at Trupanion, medical insurance for the life of your pet, have just launched a super exciting national breed club referral program. I mean, I'm saying, you guys have heard me talk about Trupanion's breeder support program before, and this is what gives you access to a special coverage offer for your litters that waives waiting periods for your puppies when you send them home. Now you can partner with Trupanion directly to share this incredible free program with the breeders in your club. And the best part, your club earns sponsorship support in return for every member that joins the program. It's pretty much of a win-win, guys. If you're interested and want to learn more, head to my partner page at puredogtalk.com and click on the link at Trupanion. If someone comes to you and is interested in a dog, who makes a great Spinoni owner and who do you recommend against necessarily, you know, that maybe a Spinoni isn't the right fit for you? It's really hard because now most of my business is repeat Mm -hmm. business and I don't breed very often. So it's like every three to four years, I guess we have a litter. And then I talk to him and I will tell you truthfully, I had a woman call me once and I thought this lady is nuts. Over the phone, she just reminded me of the pom-pom cheerleader stereotype that is there just because of her looks and wanted a Spinoni because they were new. So I made her read books, and then she really wanted a Spinoni. I recommended Joan Bailey's book and some other books, and I said she had the nab to test because I didn't think she didn't get the dog. Oh, no. And then she came to visit, and we had two litters of puppies on the ground. And remember, we still have blind old Treo. And she was sitting in this pile of dust. Literally, it was the worst place to be sitting in the yard. And she was sitting there. All these puppies were attacking her and having a blast. And Treo walked by and lifted his leg and pissed all over her back and just kept walking. Oh, my gosh. And it didn't even phase her. And, yes, she's had a Spinoni for me ever since. And She turned out to be the most amazing owner. She went from hating hunting and hating shooting to now shoots trap in her retirement age even and is on the list for a Spinoni coming up because she is just so great. I think that your description of the gal in the puppy yard, I always worry about whether it's Spinoni or when we had clumbers, I worry about the people who are super tidy. Like these are not necessarily super tidy dogs. (laughs) No, and you have to discover dilute vinegar water early in your career (laughs) to get the things that get literally thrown against the wall. It isn't bad. Some are worse than others. I mean, the dogs we've had in the house recently, occasionally there'll be something on the wall, but not too bad. Part of that is just where they have their water and where they drink and what you do around their water. And when they shed, their hair is not like Labrador hair that gets stuck in everything. It sweeps up. But if you don't strip, then you get entire soccer balls of hair you got to sweep up. So I think the coat care, you know, they're a wire hair, so they need for the health of their coat to be stripped twice a year. And they need to be taken down legs, face, everything but Mm -hmm. the muzzle, ears, tail, legs all the way down. Mm -hmm. The grooming of the Spinoni is a tragedy here in the States because you go and you look at all these fur balls in the ring or people's homes. And, you know, some of ours get fur bally too, I'm not going to admit it, but Every dog gets stripped twice a year at our house, right down to the nubs. And we use a scissor on the toes to cut the hair out between the toes because that's a little painful. And we cut the hair out. We will shave the hair out of the pads. Mm 
But by and large, we strip everything down. We take the ankles, we go mm-hmm. all the way up on the legs, the belly, mm-hmm. everything. And that's the big caretake that you have to be willing to do in these dogs. Because if you leave it, it's like leaving a winter coat on and then letting another coat come on and another mm-hmm. coat come on. It's like some woman putting on makeup for church Sunday morning and then not washing her face and just adding to it for the rest of the week. And it right. comes off in the Saturday night bath. It just is unhealthy for the coat and the skin particularly to have all that old dead because it's literally dead. And people right. say, well, I go to pull it and it doesn't come out. Well, pull the coat and start it. You'll be surprised as soon as you start, it'll pretty much all let go. Yeah. And they love it. Yeah. They just lay on the table and schmooze through it most of the time. And, right. you know, they get a little touchy in certain parts, but it's just, you know, you shouldn't surprise them when you get there. Yeah. And so in terms of grooming, you're saying regular brushing twice a year, a good hand stripping. Do you use a Coke King personally, or do you do everything with your hand stripping and your I do everything by hand. Okay. I don't use a Coke King at all. Occasionally I'll use a stripping knife, one of the German made ones, but Mm -hmm. no, I use my hands 99% of the time. Yeah. So when you meet a Spinoni, unless they have some ear gunk, they shouldn't have any smell. And that was in the original standard that was finally, I think, codified after World War II. Interesting. They shouldn't have any kind of body odor at all. And a little interesting point about World War II in the Italian resistance, who one of my mentors was in, they used the Spinoni when they went on things because it was really true that the Spinoni could tell the difference between Italians coming to meet them and Germans. Oh, my gosh. That was by the diet, we believe. Because the Germans ate mostly German food and smelled differently than mm-hmm. the Italians did. So they could tell the difference between members of the resistance that were coming to see them and other members of the resistance. They could tell the difference between the Americans or the French or whoever came in over the Germans. They could identify the Germans quite readily. Wow. The Spinoni were helping to save lives from people that were trying to do bad. Yeah. And remember, the resistance in Italy after Mussolini fell were a lot of teenagers, 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds. It wasn't necessarily old guard, but many of those men were in families that were fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth generation Spinoni breeders. And a lot of the old breeders, you would go and they would have seven generations of their parents' records as of mm-hmm. Spinoni breeders. So you could go back all the way. And when you looked at photographs from 1939, there wasn't much difference between their dogs. And the other interesting thing about the Spinoni that's kind of been lost is you used to be able to go to a big show in Italy and there'd be 20 breeders there. And you didn't even know who the breeders were, but you knew who their dogs were because they all were completely to type and standard, but they all looked a little different. You could pick out a Macroni head versus mm-hmm. a Ristoni head versus an Epithelium head versus mm-hmm. a Debabinan Cospino head. You could look at the dogs and knew who the breeders were just because they've been line breeding and doing breeding for so, so long. Interesting. Yeah, it was very, very interesting. There's also the myth about the colors of the Spinoni. The Italians won't believe this anymore, but Caterfini told me the original Spinoni was a brown roan. And in the year 1500, a dog came from Russia, a white Griffon, wire hair pointing dog, and contaminated the breed in Italy. Now, he only bred brown roans, so there was some bias. There might have been an opinion there. <laughs> However, about 20 years later, a good friend of mine, who's Russian, had a book that had been reprinted from the early 1800s in Russia that mentioned the white pointing rough-coated Griffon of 
Russia that was now extinct, but had gone to Italy to strengthen the breed in Italy. Oh, my so gosh. So from two different sources, he had to translate it from Russian, just like certain. Yeah, but actually that myth exists in Russia as well. Whether it's true or not, who knows? Interesting. But the white Spinoni have certainly become dominant compared to the brown roan. Mm-hmm. Spinoni puppies are described as mellow with bouts of rowdiness. And I think that's pretty much true. Right. That's exactly what how they behave. They're definitely a sporting dog with an off switch. For people that are looking for that particular thing, they're a dog that will go do stuff with you. They'll go on hikes. They'll go swimming. They'll go hiking. They'll do it. And they'll cuddle up and watch Netflix, right? Like they yeah. really are that dog. There are a lot of Spinoni who sleep in people's beds or on couches with them because the people want it. And they will do anything they can to please their owners because they want to be part of their life. But Spinoni's, most Spinonis, they get too hot. So they go to their own beds or go on the floor. You know, you just let them sleep where they want to sleep. If you want them to sleep in your bed, make sure they have the option to sleep out of your bed because sometimes they're only sleeping there because they're doing it for you, not for them. And they're very unselfish that way. Right. They're not unselfish with treats when there's more than one, but they're very unselfish with humans that don't care about their dried liver, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So last thing, talk a little bit about some of the health issues that people might encounter with the breeds, things that they should be aware of, health testing they should ask their breeder about, that sort of thing. Okay, so for years, the number one concern was cerebellar ataxia. Mm-hmm. which is a neurological disease which has a autosomal recessive transmission, which means one of the parents has to be a carrier and both the parents have to be a carrier for it to be expressed. Mm-hmm. By accident, they discovered a test for it, and then the test went away for about three or four years, and now it's back, but the blood oh, is sent to Italy. But if both parents have been cleared and there hasn't been any certain, and they've been tested in their background and you mm-hmm. haven't deviated, then that's one thing. The other issue that's big neurologic is epilepsy. And epilepsy is a problem in the breed. Again, in Italy, it wasn't such a big problem because dogs that seized were put down and were never bred. And so they didn't let them suffer by having seizures. And remember, for many, many years, there was no treatment for epilepsy. So people worry about hips and elbows. Mm -hmm. And I hunted behind a dog in Italy that was 14 years old and his hip the femur wasn't anywhere near the pelvis and he moved like a dream. I think shoulders and elbows are a little more concerned. I think if you have a bad elbow, you're going to have a bad elbow and Mm -hmm. that you need to address in your breeding program. But I think that that's something you would consider not breeding for. Hemangiosarcoma is another big problem in the breed. And there's a huge misunderstanding about there are two types of hemangiosarcoma. One is inside the body and it'll be in the spleen, the heart, the lungs and it's almost always fatal. Nobody knows how long it's there before it grows, but generally what happens is it eventually will bleed because the tumor starts to kill itself Mm -hmm. and then it bleeds spontaneously because the middle of the tumor can get necrotic or it'll grow into a blood vessel. And basically that's usually the end. The other type of hemangiosarcoma is only in the skin and Spinoni people panic about it and then they go to vets and they get talked into chemotherapy, but cutaneous hemangiosarcoma will never spread. It never goes beyond the skin, and it's usually just take out the lesion and you're done with it. And we had one that had it at about three years of age, and he lived to be 14, and he did not have hemangiosarcoma when he died. Like the NPR of dogdom, 
Pure Dog Talk is here for you to make sense out of everyday things, to add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tech box, to bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. Pure Dog Talk patrons support the work we do here by contributing to our crowdsourcing campaign. In return for the generosity that keeps the MP3s rolling, patrons acquire special access opportunities and perks. The most recent addition for our patrons is Pure Pep Talk. These weekly mentoring messages are quick, upbeat, actionable tips and tools for your tech box. Visit www.puredogtalk.com backslash patrons to find out how you can join the best community in dogs. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our dog show superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.